two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Welcome to the next episode of Words and Movies. I'm your co-host, Claude Call. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. And the theme of this episode is, we may be through with the past, but the past ain't through with us. which is a line from Magnolia, a movie that I hope we discuss in a future episode, although that line itself has been taken, who it's been taken from is up for debate. Mm. But anyway, um, although we as a country like nostalgia, we don't really like dealing with the past. We like to say that You know, yes, we have the past, but things are different now, and we move on from it. We don't like to think that the past influences us in any way, but that is very much not the case, although, paradoxically, there are times when you do have to move on from the past or let the past lie, even though we also need to confront it. And the two movies we're talking about today deal with both sides of that argument. And they are from 1996, Lone Star, written and directed by John Sayles, and from 2003, Mystic River, directed by Clint Eastwood. In addition to the fact that both movies deal with characters who are dealing with their own past or their people's past, especially in the case of Lone Star, both movies are also murder mysteries. There's a dead body that shows up early on in both movies, and part of the plot is trying to figure out who done it. But of course... Both movies have a lot more going on besides that and more mysteries that have nothing to do with the murder itself. And we'll get to all of that when we talk about these movies in detail. But right now, Claude is going to give us the plot description for Lone Star. I sure am. We are in Frontera, Texas. That's a border town in Rio County. Uh, Sam Deeds is the sheriff here in Frontera. He was born here, but he left as a young adult, but he returned again two years ago and got elected into this position. Sam's late father was the legendary sheriff, Buddy Deeds, who is beloved by the town. He's remembered as a unique individual with a great sense of fairness and justice, and Sam's mother is repeatedly referred to as a saint. As a teenager, Sam had some problems with his father. There was a lot of arguing and fighting, so these glad-handing descriptions, eh, they're not really helping him. But I'm getting ahead of myself because the film actually opens with a couple of men out in the desert. One of them is admiring the local flora, while the other is sweeping the area with a metal detector. We learn later on that there are a pair of off-duty sergeants from a base nearby that's due to close in about three years, and that this particular chunk of desert where they're standing was the Army's rifle range many years ago. They stumble over a human skeleton, and shortly after the police arrive, they also find a Rio County Sheriff's Badge and a Masonic Ring. 
Sam brings in Texas Ranger Ben Wetzel to help with the case. Wetzel tells Sam that forensics identify the skeleton as that of Charlie Wade. Wade was the remarkably corrupt and cruel sheriff who preceded Buddy Deeds. Back in 1957, Wade mysteriously disappeared, and as they investigated the issue, they discovered that $10,000 in county funds were missing. So, the popular theory then was that Wade took the money and ran. But now Wade's body is turned up, and not far from home for that matter. And based on the story that told by Mayor Hollis Pogue, who along with Buddy was a deputy sheriff under Wade, Buddy sounds a lot like the prime suspect, because the last time anyone saw Wade alive, it was on a night when Buddy refused to help Wade with collecting his grift. And, it turns out, the two sergeants were searching for old bullet casings, and one of those casings came from a forty-five caliber gun. Not something you typically find on a rifle range. Given that the police carry forty-fives, this is more evidence pointing to Sam's father as the trigger man. Now, Hollis and a local business leader named Mercedes Cruz are working hard to have the local jail replaced by a new and larger facility, and Sam thinks that's a waste of taxpayer money. In fact, he views it as a kind of log-rolling grift to put money into people's pockets. Over time, we learn that when Sam was a teenager, he was in love with Mercedes' daughter, Pilar, but the courtship was strongly opposed by Buddy and Mercedes. When Pilar's son is arrested for a petty crime, Sam runs into her by chance and gets him released from jail. And although he's been in town for a couple of years, this is the first time he's seen her since he left town. They begin to see each other casually from this point. Now, Mercedes is a rather complicated woman. She owns a local restaurant and she hires immigrants to work there, but she insists that they speak English because, as she says, we're in America now. She also owns a property that turns out to be close to the river, so it's a common place for illegal immigrants to cross through, and she's not above calling the Border Patrol to turn them in. Meanwhile, in another plotline, Colonel Delmore Payne has recently arrived in town as the commander of the local army base. Delmore is coincidentally the son of Otis Big O. Payne, a local nightclub owner and a leading figure in the African-American community. Big O is to the African-Americans what Buddy was to everybody else. Otis and Delmore are estranged because of Otis's serial womanizing and his abandonment of Delmore's mother when Delmore was a child. Now, during Sam's investigations of the, of the events leading up to Wade's murder, he learns more about Wade's terrible ways. In addition to his monthly extortion of the local businesses, Wade would also kill people who didn't cooperate with him. What he would do is he'd ask his victims if they carried any weapons, and when they didn't answer in the affirmative, he asked to see those weapons, and then he can justify shooting them for resisting arrest, quote-unquote. Wade used this method to murder in front of then-Deputy Hollins, uh, Hollis, uh, Mercedes' husband, Eladio Cruz, having discovered that he was running an illegal uh, smuggling operation in Rio County without bribing Wade. Sam also uncovers secrets about his father's nearly 30 years as sheriff that suggest that Buddy himself had some corruption going on. He visits Wesley Birdsong, a Native American and a roadside tourist stand owner, who reveals that Buddy was a wild young adult after his service in the Korean War, but he settled down after he became a deputy sheriff and married Sam's mother. But he also reveals that Buddy did have a mistress whose name Wesley claims to have forgotten. Sam travels to San Antonio, where he visits his marginally mentally ill ex-wife, Bunny, and searches through his father's things, where he discovers a bunch of documents, including old bills and love letters from Buddy's mistress. 
Otis tells Sam that Buddy's focus was on the county political machine, while Wade's focus was strictly on money. The janitor at the sheriff's office tells Sam that he worked on Buddy's home while incarcerated in the local jail. A local reporter uncovers that Buddy forcibly evicted residents of a small community in order to make a lake that made Frontera a popular tourist destination. And Buddy and Hollis became the owners of lakefront property. <clears throat> One of Mercedes' employees turns up in her backyard. It turns out he's been assisting some of these illegal immigrants, and one of them was injured during the river crossing. The woman is the mother of his son. She learns that the woman he married was a marriage of convenience, but now he's bringing the woman he loves over to the U.S. Mercedes is going to call the Border Patrol again to get them to bring her to a hospital, but changes her mind and takes him to a local doctor who owes her a favor. Sam confronts Hollis and Otis about Wade's murder, thinking that he has all the details to pin it all on his own late father, but it's not quite what we think. Wade discovered that Otis was running an illegal gambling operation at the nightclub after he had previously warned Otis against running numbers in the club. Wade was mostly upset, not that the gaming was going on, but that he wasn't getting his cut. So, in a flashback scene in which we hear none of the dialogue, incidentally, Wade violently attacked Otis, ordered him to hand over the monthly extortion money, and then was about to use his resisting arrest ploy to kill Otis. Buddy arrived just as Hollis shot Wade to prevent Otis's murder. The three of them then buried the body, then took the $10,000 from the county. They gave the money to Mercedes, who was left destitute after Eladio's death at Wade's hands, to allow her to buy the restaurant. Hollis also reveals that Buddy and Mercedes did not take up as a couple until sometime later. Sam decides to drop the issue, saying it will remain an unsolved mystery. Hollis voices concern that when the skeleton is revealed to be Wade, I should say publicly revealed to be Wade, people will assume Buddy killed him to take his job, to which Sam states, Buddy's a legend, he can handle it. Pilar meets Sam at an old drive-in theater where Sam shows her an old photo of Buddy and Mercedes and tells her, Eladio didn't die a few months before she was born, he died 18 months before she was born. So between the documents he found and the photo, we realize that Buddy is Pilar's father, and that makes them half-siblings. They're both a little hurt over that deception, but decide, well, she can't have any more children anyway. They're going to continue their romantic relationship. Okay, now, before I start to talk about the movie in general, let's talk about that ending a little bit, because I want to talk more about it later. Okay. Uh, I saw this in the theater when it came out. Now, granted, because I was living in Canada at the time, it came out several weeks after it had been released theatrically in the U.S., but nevertheless, the fact that Hollis, who, by the way, since you didn't list any of the actors, in the present day is played by Clifton James, mm -hmm. um, it was easy, pretty easy to figure out that Hollis was the one who killed Charlie Wade, who is played by uh, Chris Christopherson, and Jeff Monahan plays the young Hollis. You know, when that was revealed, even though sales plays fair in all of that, you know, Hollis... Um, it's not much of a surprise. After all, Hollis is the one who had the motive because he's seen Charlie 
do all of this in the past, and this must have been his breaking point. But he also had the means, obviously, because he's always carrying a gun, and the opportunity, and he also was the only one who had the means of covering this up, like the way he did, you know? Even, you know, especially back (laughs) then, no one would have um, bought for a moment that um, Otis, who, by the way, in the present day is played by Ron Canada, and in the flashback scenes is played by Gabriel Casillas. Um, he, if he had done the deed, then they wouldn't have been able to cover it up, I don't think. But if Hollis had done it, they would have covered it up. And if Buddy, who is played by Matthew McConaughey, had done it, there'd be no movie. <laughs> so it's pretty so it was pretty obvious to me who the murderer was. Yeah, like and that, that's, but that's not necessarily a terrible thing because there no. are times like it's like it's like kind of like watching Survivor. Sometimes you get accidentally spoiled and you find out who wins the million bucks at the end, but you still kind of have to you still kind of want to see how the pieces fall into place that that becomes the winner of of the show you still want to know like you figured out who Jon Snow's father was but you still want to see how we got to this position again not the main thrust of the point here okay then. but yes I did yeah it did not diminish my enjoyment of the movie mm-hmm. where I was going with this was on the other hand <laughs> the fact that Sam who is played by Chris Cooper and Pilar, who is played by Elizabeth Pena, are actually half siblings. That was a gut punch. Yeah, uh, I I distinctly remember swearing under my breath when I when they revealed that with the photograph. You know that was uh, that I did not see coming at all. And I don't think anyone in the audience that I saw this movie with did either. Yeah, I didn't swear, but it was like, oh, for me. <laughs> yeah. It was a big so, moment. Um, anyway, now that we've taken care of that, there is a lot to unpack in this movie. Now, that's usually the case with the John Sales movie, as we've discussed with Return of the Sakaka 7 and also with Honey Dripper. But there is a lot going on here. Now, obviously, one of the things that's going on here is the idea of personal history, specifically what gets passed down from parent to child. Um, now, mostly, of course, this is from father to son. The only real mother-daughter stories here are um, Mercedes, who's played by Miriam Cullen, and Pilar. And then there's a little bit with Pilar's daughter, though not too much. Um, and I'm not sure exactly who plays her. But 
Uh, most of it is father-son. And we were talking in our previous episode when talking about rabbit-proof fence, how racism gets passed down from parent to child unless the child decides to rebel against it. But sometimes it's not always a huge rebellion. It can be in increments. Now, um, Claude, I don't know if you're familiar with a publishing house named Faber and Faber. I've heard of it. That's about all I know. Okay. They pub- they publish a lot of different types of books, but one particular type of book that they publish that I'm very familiar with is they do these book-length interviews, or they have in the past, with um, certain filmmakers. Um, I own a couple of them. One of them is with Mike Lee. One is with the late, great Louis Malle. Uh, one of them was a book-length interview conversation between Steven Soderbergh and Richard Lester. Or half of that was that. The other was Soderbergh um, diaries, for lack of a better word. And um, also one with sales. And when it came time to Lone Star, he talks about how... Um, in America, you had a generation of, look, I may be a jerk and a hard ass, but I want my children to live in peace, so I'm going to kill all the Native Americans and all the wolves. And then the next generation says, well, I'm still going to be in charge, and I'm not going to feel bad that dad killed the Native Americans, but I'm going to make life easier for them. I'm going to go to the reservation, make sure that that they get their government handouts and that, you know, they actually are allowed to live on the reservation in peace. And then you have the next generation who views both their grandparent and their parent uh, in the Romeo and Juliet uh, manner, as I've mentioned before, which is a pox on both of you. <laughs> what were you thinking? And you see that, although it's not a strict father and son here, with Charlie Wade, with uh, Charlie uh, Wade and Buddy Deeds and Sam. Um, you know, Buddy is corrupt in his own way. You know, he wants to make sure everyone is um, voting the particular way, voting with the machine the particular way. But he's not taking money for himself. He's not a murderer. And as Otis says to Sam sharply, when Sam brings up something, uh, this being before we find out that Hollis killed Charlie Wade and that um, he was a, he did it before that Charlie killed Otis, but Otis could kill Otis, excuse me. But Otis says to Sam at one point, I don't recall 
a prisoner ever died in your daddy's custody. Mm-hmm. I don't recall a man in this county, black, white, Mexican, who'd hesitate for a minute to call on Buddy Deeds to solve a problem. You know, so that's why all of the local folks liked Buddy. You know, uh, when Sam is visiting. Mrs. Bledsoe, the widow of Otis's old boss, you know, and Sam identifies himself as um, as the sheriff. She says to him, you ain't the sheriff, you're Sheriff Junior. <laughs> and he gives a rueful chuckle and says, that's a story of my life. And we know, of course, that part of the, that the reason why Sam resents his father has nothing to do with his corrupt nature. It's because he wouldn't let Sam see Pilar. And by the way, the young Sam is played by uh, David Strathairn's son, Tay Strathairn. And the young Pilar is played by Vanessa Martinez. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about her a little later when I get to John Sayles' stock company. But, you know, this whole plot is driven by Sam's desire to be the one who is going to be the truth teller. Mm -hmm. You know, he's the one who's going to tell the truth about everyone and everything, including his father, especially his father. The only two times that he sort of, or not sort of, that he does lie in the movie and he realizes he's lying, but he's making peace with the fact that he's lying is the first time when he's with Bunny, who's played by Frances McDormand, uh, when he tells her that she looks good And she says, I like hearing you say that, Sam, because this is after she's given a particularly... um, Frenetic? (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say loco, but (laughs) okay. Uh, Monologue. You know, she... That's the one time where he doesn't, you know, say... He doesn't say what he should have said, which is you need to get back on your medication or up the dosage. He lets her off easy. And then um, when he finds out that Hollis was the one who actually killed Charlie Wade, he's going to let that go as a lie. Um, In some ways, this is almost a companion piece to the man who shot Liberty Valance. Because when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And in this case, he's going to get let the legend of um, what Buddy was really like stand up. Right, and the legend's going to take the heat, basically, because he's yes. dead, and that's the way it goes. And, you know, what yes. what I, I think he recognizes, you know, what point is there in stirring this up? It, it doesn't help anybody you know anybody who's still alive is at the end of their lives and it's 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 just not gonna it's not going to move anybody forward as far as just 
healing the town or anything like that. But you mentioned the the, the generational thing, and there are a lot of different subplots where where we see that going on, which you, I was going to get to. But you know, okay, so go ahead. so you know, so we've got that between Sam and his father, and we've also, but we've also got um, um, Delmore and his father Otis, but we've also got right. Delmore and his son. Okay, chat. and the way, yeah, chat, and and the way that those things are are kind of shaking out, and I didn't talk too much about that. Um, yeah, Delmore, by the way, is played by Joe, Joe Morton, Morton. Mm-hmm. and um, Shat is played by that would be Eddie Robinson. Eddie Robinson, yes, yeah. Um, but there, you've also got, as you mentioned briefly, the the uh, relationship between um, Mercedes and Pilar. And again, something I didn't really talk about because it doesn't fit neatly into my narrative here is that we did get a flashback with Mercedes, and it turns out, what do you know? She was an illegal She's immigrant an herself. Illegal immigrant herself, yeah. So, and and so that's one of the things that actually complicates her is that you know this is her thing, and in fact, she herself got stuck in the river, and so that's her kind of flashing back on what happened when her employee turns up with the injured girl. And so I think that's part of what changes her mind, uh, but also the fact that he is doing this out of a sense of love. Like, he's doing everything out of a sense of love. He came to America. He married a girl out of convenience so that he could take the woman he loves and the mother of his child and bring them across and at some point, you know, make her a legal immigrant. And Mercedes, I think, finally kind of sees the light in that particular respect. So there's just a lot of different layers of these stories going on. And I want to get back and I'm going to get back to the flashbacks in a moment. But before that, I want to get into the, um, Charlie, uh, with, with the, um, Otis Delmore and Shet relationships Mm -hmm. here, because on the one hand, you've got, in this whole thing of um, Hollis spinning history his own way because he's the one we first hear tell the story of how Buddy told uh, Charlie Wade, uh, leave town and don't come back. And the fact that he subtly and not so subtly (laughs) is trying to steer Sam away from digging too deep into his father's past where Sam wants to expose everything so that history is, you know, something that is um, debated as, and also as, although no one says this out loud, um, at least not word for word, that history is dictated by the winners. And that comes out most clearly in a school board meeting that Pilar is part of, where you've got angry white parents being upset about what's taught in Pilar's history class about the Mexicans and the Mexican Americans. You know, you've got this one woman says, you know, look, if you want to talk about music and food, that's one thing. 
But when you want to talk about who did what, you know, we are, she doesn't say these exact words, but she said that we are the victors here. And when Pilar is saying, I'm just trying to present a more complicated and complex picture here with all the complexity in it, the mother snaps back and that's what has to stop. Yeah. But, and um, on the other hand, though, we see um, that history dynamic play out much more differently with Otis and Delmore and Shet. On the one hand, you've got the fact, of course, that Delmore is um, estranged from his father. And uh, by the way, um, although Ron Canada is playing Joe Morton's father, he's actually 18 months younger <laughs> in real life than Morton is. But of course, Canada's got the gray hair, so he's able to make that work for him. And, um, you know, he's got abandonment issues and issues with uh, his father. Um, Delmore has issues with his father's womanizing, whereas. Delmore wants Chet to follow his footsteps in the army, whereas Chet wants to be an artist. You see him in Pilar's class drawing. Yeah, he's, he's doing, doing, a, fl- doing a, fl- that, a flip book, yeah. Yeah, the flip book. And Pilar catches him on it, and then he says something that is germane to what, that, what she's discussing, Everybody's killing everyone else, although it's sort of a facile answer to what she's saying. But, you know, he doesn't want to join the army. And it's not until Delmore finds out that Otis has been keeping a shrine Mm -hmm. of all of his achievements that he finally decides to say to chat, you know, if you don't want to join the army, That's fine. And on the other hand, um, Otis has, in addition to the shrine to his son, that his son doesn't find out till later, he also has a shrine in his bar to the history of African Americans and how they've uh, intersected with Native Americans. The the, the Black Seminoles. Yes. And he uses that as a point of pride. And after Chet uh, comes back to the bar the second time, the first time is when he comes in right before there's a shooting there, which I don't remember if you mentioned. No, I didn't. That's also a clever bit of um, plot right there, which I'm going to, and again, I am going to get back to the structure of the movie in a moment, but um, you see him pull something out of his um, shirt when he first comes into the bar, and it's actually something that deals with... um, his grandfather, and also what his grandfather is um, interested in, which is the history of the Black Seminoles. And this is a way, this is showing how 
people like Otis, and he hopes Chet feels the same way. Delmar doesn't really talk about it one way or the other, that they take pride in that history. That makes them feel good, that they fought like that, were warriors like that, and passed down traditions that he feels are valuable to the way he lives now. So you can see how history plays a very complex role in this movie. You know, it can be used in good ways. It can also be used in bad ways. And sometimes you have to remember, well, you should always remember the history. But on the other hand, as Pilar says in the final line of the movie, you know what? Forget the Alamo. You know, you've got to be able to disseminate through the history to find out what to keep, what to throw out, what to have, what to, what legend you need to expose. Because there's a reporter who's at the school board meeting and um, arguing with Hollis in the street about, you know, what. But he did, you know, his financial misdeeds. And that reporter, by the way, is played by Jesse Boriego. Um, you know, that's history you have to confront. But then there's some history where you have to let the legend take over. And it's, it's a real complex way of sales that sales is uh, dealing with it here. You know, he's not saying this side is right, absolutely right. This side is absolutely wrong. He says you have to look at all of this together with the big picture. And that's one of the reasons why this movie is so good. Right. And then similarly, you've got a subtext that this town is going to change whether people like it or not for several reasons first the base is going to go away soon okay right they, they, you, at first you think it's imminent but then you hear later on it's probably going to be about three years out so you've got that okay you've got the arguments about the history that are going on and which i imagine just given the nature of those arguments and the content are probably still going on uh, 27 years later um but no, the other, but really? the other, yeah. But the other thing you've got is that you've still got this black-white divide in the town, okay? Where Otis is known as the mayor of Darktown, and and so forth. And but at the same time, in his bar, you also see a mixed-race couple. That gets me to the structure part of the screenplay. You know, sales. Um, gets talked about in the themes that he is bringing across in the movie, in his movies, and then also how they're more character-driven than plot-driven at their best. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's ever directed a bad movie, but the weakest movies he's directed, and I'm thinking of movies like Eight Men Out, uh, Men with Guns, Silver City, and Amigo. The, the latter two I would like to rewatch at some point because I haven't seen them. 
I haven't, excuse me, I haven't seen them in a while. Um, it seems like the plot is dictating the characters rather than the other way around. But in his really good movies, such as this, it's the characters that seem to be driving the story along. And we allow, and he allows the characters to develop naturally. And, and that goes in how he introduces them. And, you know, the first scene in the movie is when we see Cliff and Mikey. Mikey, by the way, is played by Stephen J. Lang, not to be confused of, with Stephen Lang, the guy who played Freddie Lowndes in uh, Manhunter, the first version of um, Red Dragon, or um, the guy who played the big bad in the first Avatar movie. Um, but you have them going through that old, um, old desert area. And then we see Sam coming out to inspect the crime scene. But the first scene after that is with Pilar to set up the fact that she's going to be important to the story. Mm -hmm. But also we see, although we don't know who she, that's who she is yet, Delmore's wife and Shet's mother talking to each other about the fact that Chet's transferring in and she wants to know how it's going to be and Pilar reassuring her that, you know, Chet's a good kid, Chet seems like a good kid and you're a concerned parent, so I don't anticipate any trouble. And it's only at the end of the scene that we find out that Pilar's son who is going to bring Sam and Pilar together again um, is not shown up for school yet. So that whole way of structuring things is um, really important to sales. And at his best, he does it seamlessly. And he also integrates what may seem like what what not doesn't seem like what is um, particularly thematic dialogue that might seem in the hands of a lesser writer director to be too much on the nose, but when he's cooking like this, it feels natural. And I'm thinking especially of the scene where Sam goes to tell Hollis, who, by the way, is mayor of this town. And um, when he, when Sam finds him, he's fishing, and he <laughs> comes to tell him that Charlie Wade, that it was Charlie Wade's skull that they found. And he's thinking maybe Buddy had something to do with it. And they, ha they have a bit of a pointed exchange about that. And then after that, Hollis... Um, says something like, look at all this equipment just to catch a little fish. Seems a little too much, doesn't it, Sam? Yeah. And again, that, that in the wrong hands, that could have been too on the nose, but here it works. Yeah, it's, he's very subtle. All, all, you know, throughout, just as you say, with the structuring and the layering 
and some of the some of the dialogue and it all just it just comes together so so well in this particular film now one of the reasons sales is able to do this is that do this so well thematically is the uh, flashbacks um, now one of the interesting that the interesting thing about these flashbacks is with the exception of when Sam is interviewing Mrs. Bledsoe and she is played by Beatrice Wind or Wind Day, maybe. I'm not sure how the last name is pronounced. That is the only flashback that is done through Dissolve. Every other time in the movie, Sales and his cinematographer, Stuart Dryberg, pan the camera over to illustrate that we're going into a flashback. Now, I don't remember if he if they do that by going left to past and right to present all the time, if there's any consistency in that. No, there isn't. Okay, but it's always a pan to the flashback and then another pan when we come back to the present. And that's a good way of illustrating how the past is really part of all these characters' lives, whether they want it to be or not. And it's a very seamless transition. Yeah, I, the, I, there's there's one other time when they don't, uh, well, they do it, but, but what happens is there's a scene change and you start in the past and then the camera pans and we wind up in the present again. It comes in late in the movie, so I was like kind of watching for it at that point and I should have made a note of exactly when it happened. Uh, it might actually have been with, no, I don't want to say that. I'm, I'm just going to leave it at that. There is there is one scene that starts in the past, but we get the pan over, and suddenly we're in the present again. So it, it does, but it, but it, it's so smooth, and they do it so so well, and uh, it's it's really seamless. And there are many many times where they do in fact have to swap bodies in and out in order to get this to work the way it's supposed to work out, and it it's it just it's just so perfectly done every single time like the first time you they do it it's actually with mayor hollis and he's sitting at the table and the camera starts on his hands and moves to the right just a little bit to focus on a on a a basket of tortillas and you're like really why are we staring at the tortillas and then the next thing you know a hand reaches in pulls back a tortilla revealing the money and we continue the pan to see that it's um that that it is um Charlie I was, I was gonna, yeah, I was going to say Buddy Deeds, and I knew that was wrong. To you know, picking up the money, and we're and we're in the past. So it, it's it's, and, and so you say, okay, that's a weird little gimmick, but then it turns out to be the thing that he does it every single time, and it just works out so well every time. You just you just start looking forward to the next time they're going to do it. Almost that, like every time the camera starts to move, you're anticipating that change to the okay. Now what else are we going to see? Okay, and here as well. Um, Sales and his usual composer, Mason Daring, um, they incorporate a lot of Mexican-slash-Spanish music, 
as well as a few rock and roll cuts as well. Um, the first time that um, we see Charlie Wade threatening Otis, which is Mrs. Bledsoe's flashback, we got Big Joe Turner's uh, original version of Shake, Rattle, and Roll playing in the bar. Mm-hmm. And then when uh, Sam and uh, Pilar are dancing in her mother's restaurant, uh, there's a Freddie Fender tune playing. And uh, Sales says something about Fender in the book here. Let's see if I can find it real quick. Yeah, it's the Freddie Fender recording of Since I Met You, Baby. But here's the cool thing. It's the same musical track as the original Ivory Joe Hunter version. So... You know, at first I was like, I, I'm, I'm trying to place this song. I know it because I remember that, like that little piano riff that, that goes on through it. And then finally it locked in on me and I was like, oh, okay. This is the, this is the Spanish version of Since I Met You, Baby. And then I kind of placed Freddie Fender as well. But yeah, and it's also it was also playing in Otis's place when Delmore first comes in there. Yes, and uh, Fender was the in sales words he was the first Hispanic rock and roll uh, guy. Um, he took rock and roll and brought it to Latin America. So that was another reason for that choice aside from the fact that it's a good song richard valens might have something to say about that but okay (laughs) um anyway um two other things i want to i wish i had more time to deal with Mm. uh one of them is um you know sales is often accused of in addition to being a literary filmmaker, like that's a bad thing, of being someone who um, has two-dimensional characters, which, as we've demonstrated throughout this uh, discussion, is not true at all for this movie. And for lacking a sense of humor. And that is also not true for this movie you know we get that right from the opening scene where um cliff and uh mikey are um having two different conversations and they're not hearing one another and cliff is disparaging mikey for not recognizing uh the different types of fauna that are involved and then later when Mikey asks Cliff if Priscilla's um, parents are going to have an issue with him being a white guy, with him wanting to marry her, um, he tells her that, you know, her parents think any woman over 30 who isn't married yet is a lesbian. <laughs> so they'll be so happy that uh, she's getting married. They're not going to care about the white guy, black woman thing. And Mikey says, oh, it's heartwarming to see a prejudice defeated by a deeper prejudice. Yeah. And you've got little nuggets like that throughout the movie. Um, so it's uh, this is not just a dour um, 
eat your vegetables movie, even though there are a lot of serious things going on here and a lot of complex things going on here. Then one last thing that I want to bring up is as we discussed in um, our episodes on Return of the Secaucus 7 and Honey Dripper, Sales has his own stock company. Um, this was the third of five movies to date that uh, Cooper has done with uh, sa- that Cooper had done with Sales. Um, this after Matewan and uh, City of Hope, and his second lead role for Sales, and. There's sort of a I I there's sort of a iconography to his role in that you're meant to think of another Cooper, Gary Cooper, playing a different type of uh, sheriff role, um, and Cooper has played a lot of villains in his career, and some of them he's played quite well. But he is another one of those actors who I prefer when he's playing fundamentally decent people as Sam is here. And he does a terrific job of bringing out all of the character traits in him. And then other members of his stock company who, have, who appear in this, obviously Joe Morton who's been in quite a few things of his. Uh, Stephen Mendio and Stephen J. Lang have appeared in a few of his movies. Um, Chris Christopherson went on to appear in Limbo and Silver City, which also has Cooper in it. Elizabeth Pena had been in um, sales um, only TV series that he created Shannon's Deal uh, where she played a secretary to the title character a lawyer and uh, Vanessa Martinez who as I mentioned plays the young Pilar she went on to appear in um, Limbo and Casa de los Babies And all of them do good work here, especially Cooper, Pena, and Morton, who is playing, as he did with City of Hope, a character who is trying to hold everything in and not lash out because he feels that that's how he's going to be seen. uh, That's how he's going to be able to compete in the white world. And he does the good job of conveying all that. Yeah. Just to come back on, on Chris Cooper for a minute. I mean, you know, chances are like most people's entry to his work was, uh, it was his appearance as July Johnson and Lonesome Dove. And I know that was a, TV miniseries, but man, we should really take some time to talk about that sometime um, because it, it's just so huge and so epic. And it did start out as a, as a film script. But anyway, yes, you know, I think this was uh, he did a lot of like TV movies and that kind of thing. So people kind of knew who he was. I think this is the first time he really carried something big and he just does a fantastic job with it. And 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 I love the love, love the 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 
the slightly sardonic humor and at the same time the pathos that he brings to it it's, it's just I, I it's a, just amazing his work on this one right you know every time um they said to him uh your dad was one of a kind and your mother was a saint <laughs> yeah 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 at the end in his last in his last scene with that with um Otis and when um, Otis and Hollis uh, say about Buddy, and then Sam snaps, "Yes, and my mother was a saint." Right, you can tell he's getting ready. He's going to hurt the next person who says that to him. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have anything else that you want to bring up before we wrap this up? No, no, I do not. All right. Well, um, coming up immediately after this, we will be talking about Mystic River. That's coming up immediately in your podcast feed, so stick around. <laughs>